Welcome to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women. I'm Dr. Renee Frazier, a social psychologist running an advertising and marketing firm in Los Angeles. We're the largest woman-owned advertising agency, and we're focused on doing well by doing good with campaigns like Talk, Read, Sing for children and parents, as well as campaigns about vaccinations and COVID-19 for the L.A. County Department of Public Health and much more. But on our show, we talk with women who have advice and counsel for other women. Our show is Why Women? Why do certain issues and concerns affect women in ways that maybe they don't affect men? Today, we're going to be talking about entrepreneurship, influencers, the way to find your own identity and share that in a safe community. On the show, I like to help women with practical tips and stories that inspire them, bringing on women who have in their own ways overcome challenges and created a success in their lives. Our purpose is to help women lead and succeed. And I stress the word lead first because sometimes you have to lead and step into an issue before you have the level of success you might feel might be necessary. We as women tend to hold back and want to be able to be fully prepared, whereas men rush right in, hiring whoever it will take. I have found in my career that women really bring a fresh perspective and needless to say, a lot of emotional intelligence, which is particularly relevant today. Now, my guest today is one of those people who leads with emotional intelligence. Her name is Jory Desjardins. Desjardins means of the gardens in French. I'll have to ask Jory about the origin of her name. But let me mention that Jory pioneered social marketing as a co-founder and president of Blog Her, which was a media marketplace started back in 2005. We're going to ask more about what it took to start that. She represented a community of thousands of digital influencers influencers and creators. And she was the primary evangelist of social influence to agencies and brands, getting them to develop strategic partnerships with advertisers and with uh, influencers, something we all do now. And at Fraser Communications, we do that for a variety of clients. Uh, She's now involved in a company called Countable, where she's the CMO. And we'll talk about that wonderful company and a very innovative product that they that they are delivering to the market. But first, let me bring on Jory. Jory, please welcome us and thank you for being on the Dr. Renee Frazier Show. Thank you, Renee. It's great to be here. Well, I'm delighted to be able to talk with you about your success and what it took to get to that success. I'd like to start with what you think makes you successful in your life. What characteristics, what values? Well, let's start with the first thing that perhaps many quote unquote successful people find about themselves, and that's that they never really feel that successful. They're (laughs) always in pursuit. Right. I'd say that's probably the number one. Um, And it's not always a good thing, but I think not believing in our own, uh, that we are done, that we are successful is probably the first uh, characteristic of many successful people because we just don't stop. Right. Striving for more always. Yes. I like that. I think that is important. I think the um, the other thing that becomes part of that is we talk a lot about this show about imposter syndrome, right? Being part of a group and feeling like, well, gee, wait a minute, I'm not that accomplished. But th- that uh, 
hum humility, right, can also drive you to be more successful. Tell me about your childhood and, and who influenced you when you were growing up. Well, one of the things that um, I think made it different for me is I'm an identical twin. Oh, my. And mm. Yes, mm. which is kind of interesting because it never came up when I was growing up. If anything, I always wanted to separate myself uh, from this other person who people mistook me for. As you're forging this identity in the world, I found that having someone always around who people called, uh, called me by her name, Mm -hmm. assumed I was like her, I found it to be incredibly frustrating. And um, it's very different now. I think now it's been very uh, inspiring, impactful for me because we both have some similar interests, but we've gone in very different directions. Oh, that's good. That's good. It certainly affected me. I bet. Yeah. It made me, uh, I think, probably, uh, I think we're, youngsters want to compete with each other or compete with other people. I had one person I was competing with and she was a hard person to compete with. <laughs> she was she, class. Right. She had all your so characteristics, it. right? All the same <laughs> capabilities. So right. yeah, my guess is you tried to differentiate yourself. You always tried to strike out and be different, which took some courage. I have to say. Yeah, I think so. I think um, at the time it was just, how can I be different? And then years later, seeing that we were different, it's how can what makes her different help to enhance my life? And it's, it's been really interesting. My sister took a very different turn into academia, became a college professor, uh, wrote many books, mm-hmm. and does not have a, a promotional bone in her body. Wow. So wow. we kind of joke about it because I said, wow, you've developed all the content and I can help you promote that. Right. <laughs> right. I always had this book in me that I never finished and she's finished many books, but she just <laughs> never promotes it. <laughs> well, it sounds like there are a lot of, um, certainly a love between you and a lot of similarities, but the, the promotional capability, the ability to market, to find what's distinctive, what's going to ring true to people, what's going to be relevant, get their attention and something they want to hear, want to learn about, want to see is what promotion is all about, right? How to promote. And you and I as marketers are, are both in that business. How did you find your passion for business? I'm curious. In high school and college, tell me about that. It was completely unexpected. Mm-hmm. I thought I was going to be uh, the great American novelist. Mm-hmm. I was a lit major, had no interest in business whatsoever. Um, and, and started my career in a book publishing house in New York City and found that probably the biggest deterrent to actually writing is being in the industry and having to edit other people's work and market other people's work. Hmm. I found that I didn't have the energy to actually build my own. And then I had this realization that I didn't have a whole lot to write because yeah. I hadn't really done anything. You were young, right? I was young. Um So it occurred to me that I needed to find new adventures in order to be a better writer. And I got into this uh, Web 1.0, my first startup. I was uh, was hired in New York, but I moved out to San Francisco for a media startup. Uh And it set me on a whole new course of adventures. And uh, I started as an editor and a producer 
But then I started making recommendations to the business team. Well, why don't you pitch this? Why don't you try this? How about we build this into the strategy? Uh, And then they ended up asking me to join them on the business development team. Excellent. And then I took it from there and moved into another startup. And that's exactly what I did when I started Blogger, my my startup with uh, two other co-founders. Wow. So I, I want to talk about Blogger in just a moment, but I, I want to go back to the Web 1.0. I mean, that was a time when, are you talking like 2000, 2001, 1998? What so time? like first started in 1999. Nine. Okay. So yes, you are, you are very close. So the startup I was at was 1999 to 2002 when it promptly died with re- all the other startups. I remember the bubble. Yes, you know, I and I think back to that time, I had a, quite a few friends who went into that. I stayed uh, in the drudgery of, uh, of advertising, integrated marketing, as we called it then. And uh, But I, I admired people who took the risk. I think, too, being a publisher and an editor, that plays a role, right? When you're creating digital content, somebody has to be the filter. Somebody has to also make it relevant to people so they want to read it, watch it, listen to it. So... Uh, it sounds like it tapped into your skills. What do you think, though, made you take such a big risk just go out to a startup of all places? I was frustrated in traditional media. Uh, I worked at very big media companies, worked at the New York Times, worked at Penguin uh, Book Publisher, which became Penguin Putnam. I worked at Time Inc. when it was Time Inc. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. uh, so many companies that uh, either have changed or merged or don't exist any longer. And I found I was frustrated being on the business end of content, and I wanted to either create or be on the business end. And the fun part of a startup was that I got to do it all. Right, right. For me, it was creative. It was very creative building out business models and figuring out, well, how do we uh, make this content work? For as a business, I like that. You, uh, that's also yeah. challenging. Some people don't like that. They like one road. They're in their lane, one track, and they could get the job done and succeed. But in your case, you're creating new all the time, so you have to succeed on your own. I think that's fantastic. That's what I liked about it. Wow, it was totally merit based, right? Which was kind of unique. I mean, when I went into publishing, I was an editorial assistant. And then, boom, on exactly the one-year anniversary, I became an assistant editor. They just switched the order of the of the words. <laughs> and then one year later, you're an associate editor. Then one year later, you're an editor. And right. then you just kind of make your way across this very um, well-trodden spectrum. Yes, and I get it. So I get, get it. So you wanted yes. something new and fresh. Uh, listeners, you're listening to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women? And <clears throat> we're talking with Jory. Desjardins, who left the corporate world for web startups. Next, we're going to hear about her successful company she created called Blog Her, one of the first places you could find influencers. And later, we'll talk about what it takes to be an influencer. Stay tuned to hear more from Jory Desjardins as we hear about her successful startup.
Welcome back to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women. We're talking today with Jory Desjardins, who started a social marketing company way back in 2005. And prior to that was part of the first web bubble. She has been very successful in starting a company called Blogger, which is a, was a media marketplace representing a community of thousands of digital influencers and creators. She's also going to tell us what it takes to be successful at that. Welcome back to the show, Joy. Thanks, Renee. Let's talk about uh, Blogger. I understand you started that with two co-founders in 2005. Tell us the story of how you got started and why. Well, it was in the wake of Web 1.0. I had been floating around finding errant jobs here and there because the startup I was at had uh, had gone under, like many mm-hmm. startups had gone under. And I refound my voice. I had been writing in New York prior to being at the startup. And because I had some time on my hands, started to write again. And I connected with these people who were very like-minded called bloggers, which doesn't seem like such an unusual thing. Uh-huh. But back in 2004, mm-hmm. it, it was an emerging uh, space. And while I was in that exploration, I attended a conference and met another a woman who, similar to me, had left uh, the uh, startup world and was exploring blogging. And she was one of the first professional bloggers. I had actually read about her. Mm-hmm. And we hit it off beautifully. Her name was Elisa Camahort Page. And she introduced me to another woman named Lisa Stone, uh, who also had been blogging for the time the Democratic National Convention uh, had really started to build uh, her blogging consultancy. This was not a full-time job at the time. Mm-hmm. And it, prior to that, been involved in media. And when the three of us got together, we realized that there was a community of other like-minded women in this space, which at the time was primarily dominated by men. Let's not forget that blogging was seen as a new technology. Right, I remember. Right. 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 And technology often um, is dominated by by men. men. That's right. Uh, At the time, there was a conference called uh, Blogger. Not the name of the blogging software, but blogger for anyone who's blogging. And it was mostly technologists and business uh, people. And we in, we sort of uh, took a look at that and said, well, what happens if we actually created our own community of women who we knew were using the tools? They just weren't promoting themselves and putting themselves on lists of the top bloggers that existed because women don't do that as much. They don't (laughs) promote themselves, right? Women don't promote themselves the way men do. Absolutely. That's right. right. And we put out just some calls and we were connected to other people in the community, uh, LGBTQ bloggers, other mom bloggers who didn't call themselves mom bloggers at the time. It was seen as a bit of a derogatory statement. Oh, political bloggers, food bloggers, just tap people in our network. And lo and behold, we got a group of about 300 women to join us for a one-day event in Santa Clara, California in 2005. And they were, unbeknownst to us, they invited press. We had CNN at our first conference. We had the Today Show. And we had, I mean, we were hardly even capable of feeding people we had a the, the night before we actually had this party where it was a buffet style mm-hmm. 
help yourself <laughs> to keep the cost down. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so that was our first foray, and it was it was magical. From there, we had so many people come to us, not just other bloggers, but brands who said, "You clearly have." have the ear of this community, which we were a part of, which is why we had the ear of it. We weren't mm-hmm. trying to control it or we wanted to be a part of it and to get our, our friends, the like-minded people together. Uh, and investors actually attended as well and said, well, are you fundraising? And we realized, well, maybe we need a business before <laughs> we fundraise. Yeah. So we got our, put our heads together and really thought about it and Given two of us used to be at media companies, we had an immediate reaction to the idea of building a network of other digital influencers. What a smart idea. Right. So during that era, the 2005, 2004, 2005, 2006, we had just come out of a bubble bursting on so many startups. So I can understand the hesitation, but you saw a need for women to share their perspective. I I like the idea. I mean, I'm sure there was food, fashion, being mom, being business, being technology as well. And it was a safe place for women to share their perspectives. I remember when blogs first came out, I thought, well, these are essays. These are articles. These are short pieces where people share a point of view. And I remember creating one and thinking, my goodness, this is fun to be able to share your own perspective and essentially self-publish. You don't have to go to a magazine or a journal and and pitch your story. Uh, You put it out there. Now, Blog Her became a community, right? And ultimately, it grew with like-minded women to be much larger. What did it take to grow it? And how did you bring women in? How did you draw them in? Well, it helps to be uh, early in Mm -hmm. and to also do it authentically. And that's that's such a a word thrown out in this space about being authentic. Uh, But because we had established these rules of engagement, not just for the bloggers, but for any brand or organization that wanted to work with them, they felt protected. They mm-hmm. trusted us mm-hmm. as being as having their backs. Uh, an example of that. So back in 2005, the only way that brands knew how to engage with bloggers was like they would engage with journalists. They would send a press release. And in this case, they saw bloggers as free labor. Mm-hmm. Hey, you have some readers. Here's some information. Would you please post this onto your site? And bloggers were really irritated by that. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to engage, but in partnership. And they didn't want to have to say what they wouldn't have said in their own words. So we set up rules of engagement and we even worked with the FTC on uh, standards and guidelines around disclosures so that there was a framework for brands to engage with bloggers. I and like not that. all bloggers, to be fair, wanted to engage with brands. And sure. that was okay, too. Sure. So you created guidelines that created a safe space for people. <clears throat> you know, uh, a couple shows back, I talked to the woman who started a group called Witty. It's Women in Technology. And yes. very similar story in that she saw an authentic need for women in technology to come together as a group to be able to share best practices, to help each other get jobs, to share their perspective, especially 
especially in a male-dominated field. And part of it was rules of engagement. You know, it goes unsaid sometimes how people are going to treat each other. But I find when women are involved, it doesn't go unsaid. It has to be articulated that there's kindness, that there's listening, that there's reciprocity. Uh, And in this case, you had rules of engagement that allowed the bloggers to take their own point of view, it sounds like. Without question. And there's a lot of research backing up what you're saying, Renee, about how women at the time, there were all these studies done about the power of blogging and women by a multiple were more effective because we naturally and authentically share things when we are, when we have a good experience, Mm -hmm. a bad experience. Mm -hmm. So brands knew to come to us, but they came to us in the way that they that they have always been going to journalists. The old-fashioned way, right? Their press release expecting you to promote exactly what they said, right? Right. Right. And also, the, the other thing that I would say, as you know, I've seen it so many times, but I would connect with bloggers who would tell me about brands that reached out to them and would give them product. And just for that alone, say nice things about us, mention <laughs> our name, share, share our product. And it just doesn't work like that. Well, tell us how you changed it. You gave women then the right to say, wait a minute, I want to charge a fee. I want to be a content creator, not just a promoter. Tell, tell me what the change was. And this happened early on, it sounds like, in 2005, 2007, 2008. We started to really see the commercial effects around 2007, 2008. But in 2005, I mean, there was a lot of uncomfortable conversations because uh-huh. we know there were no terms of engagement. There was a lot of talk about blogging being the Wild West. And there were women, prominent women in the community who were literally being driven out by trolls oh my just gosh. for <laughs> expressing themselves online. Um, so there was a, a need, but no one prior to that had really set the the rules of engagement. So the first thing we did, and again, because we had editorial backgrounds, we had established terms of civil disagreement is what we called it, (laughs) which was basically like, look, we all have our opinions and we all can share them here and we can share them safely. And if you're attacked or if there's any uh, physical or emotional harassment, you're out. I love it. I love it. Engaging in our, in our platform that, created a a safe space, but that also translated out into the blogs. They adopted it on their own platform. Jory, it's amazing. I'm going to uh, have you pause there as we go into the next segment and listen to news and traffic. This is the Dr. Renee Frazier Show. Why women? We're talking about the evolution of bloggers and influencers uh, that Jory Desjardins was a big part of crafting, which included rules of engagement and the problem we have and we see still with attacks and trolls. Stay tuned and we'll talk about what does it take to be a successful influencer? How can you put boundaries around your content and make money in this world? Stay tuned for the Dr. Renee Frazier Show on KABC. Welcome to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show. Why women? I'm the social psychologist and entrepreneur, Renee Frazier, running Frazier Communications. And today we're talking about social media 
specifically focused on influencers. My guest is Jory Desjardins, who's with a company called Countable. But prior to that, she was responsible for crafting a lot of the rules of engagement for women bloggers in particular, and it spread to all bloggers. Jory, we were talking about the difficulty that some women were having as they blogged, and we talked a little bit about trolls and anger. Can you describe some of those situations that you came up against back in that early period when you had started Blog Her? Indeed. So there were some women who had embraced the platform and were writing and were well-respected. They were publishing not just online, but publishing books as a result of their blogs. They were developing platforms. And for many of these women, they were uh, scientists. There's a, a, a scientist, Kathy Sierra, who would write about user experience online and would share her research. And men and women appreciated what mm-hmm. she had to say. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, it was perceived by trolls, by mm-hmm. some people, that uh, it was threatening. Like, this is our space, not yours. Mm-hmm. And she was threatened and she stopped blogging. And this actually galvanized quite a few women in the space who felt that we're just starting to find our voices here. And she wasn't writing or inciting violence even. So why why can't we have this space just like everyone else? Right. And it led a lot of women to really explore that question. And it also led women to explore how they identified online. An example would be the classic mom blogger, classic now to anyone who has read a blog, but at the time that was seen as a as a derogatory statement if you were a, a mom blogger. Just what, why was I mean, that? Some, why, why would that be? You know, Is it you're taking advantage of your role as a mother or you're stepping out of bounds? Well, I no, don't remember that being so negative. Hmm. Well, I think there was a, a lack of respect for people who were not using the the platform for professional reasons. And we were just connecting with each other. I I remember statements like, oh, that's for LiveJournal, which was a journaling site and in essence, a blog for women. And one of the things that came up at our very first conference, at the Blogger Conference, there was a a mom blogger, a woman who stood up and and said, and, and there was a lot of fanfare after she said this, mom blogging is a radical act. Oh, wow. Because it was putting out your personal in a public way. Uh I think there was still discomfort of turning the personal and such personal work that was not blessed or uh, had been published by a major magazine or publication, just putting it out there for the world to see. Wow. Uh, And that's certainly changed now that we're in 2022. Now we see many people are putting their personal opinions out. We're in a period where Elon Musk is uh, purchasing or trying to take over Twitter. And we know that his belief is there should be more unbridled conversation. So uh, it's certainly evolved to that radical move to a more common approach where people just share their opinions and blast other people without any regard for journalism rules. Do you see that happening? There was a lot of discussion about it when blogging started to take off. And I remember sitting in symposiums and conversations on panels about how this was all going to hell. Mm-hmm. And I think at the end of the day where, where we had netted out was we need traditional 
uh, media because they help us to substantiate our own. Right. And we needed to raise the level of the of the uh, individual blogger who was maybe sounding off or or taking things in a direction that wasn't substantiated by fact. And there still will be that. Yeah. But I do think that there are more resources that are available right. to bloggers and independents, amateur mm-hmm bloggers, if you will. Right, right. And and I think there are some guidelines that exist. I know in the schools of journalism and communication, there are guidelines and, and uh, rules that they're taught. But I, I want to, before we move into the evolution, I'd like to talk about trolls. And uh, it's a term that we use a lot. We, we handle the social media for the Department of Public Health in L.A. County. We have 120,000 followers, the largest following of any Department of Public Health in the United States, uh, except for the CDC out of Washington, D.C. And we're very proud of that. It's because we've been authentic and uh, obviously led with the science throughout this period. And I think uh, my team does a great job with animation, with videos and making it very relatable. But my point was going to be, we get a lot of negative feedback about masking and about vaccination. And I will have to say, as a social psychologist, I think the anonymity of being online brings out more negative commentary than positive. Have you experienced that? And can you tell me your definition of a troll? Well, unquestionably, I've experienced that. And uh, with BlogHer, we experience that all the time. And the way that we combated that was through identification and verification of identity. If Even if you're not using your name, if you have identified and verified your identity, you are much less likely to that's, abuse that's the right. tools. That's right. Uh, and so, of course, I mean, I think about these new platforms like uh, Parler that uh, – of course, they are grounded in this whole idea of free expression, but until there is a, a more identification and validation of the sources behind the information, I think that we're not truly in a, in a safe environment. Uh, so where do I think it's going? I, I'm not sure. I think um, one of the things that I have observed is that communities have become more intimate, mm-hmm. but they've almost gotten smaller again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Witness, there are several uh, sites now, and even this, where I am now at Countable, uh, we have largely reacted to brands saying, look, we, we realize that getting too big, we can't uh, validate this community. We, right. we want it to be safe. Right. So they are, uh, they are, I would say, trading in volume and size for relevance and for uh, veracity. Right, for quality. I think what, uh, what you're saying is, of course, social media is open to everyone, so you can all be on Twitter. And just to be clear to the audience, uh, without identifying yourself and verifying the information, you can create a heck of a tempest in a teapot, a very big controversial discussion, and nobody has to know who you are. People create false identities. There are ways of creating a troll that trolls for trouble, right? And actually persistently uh, cast out or shame or 
anger on certain subjects that they don't agree with or people that they don't agree with. And that trolling for trouble creates all kinds of consternation. And of course, people legitimately who've written the material and the content can can fear for themselves. Am I going to be attacked? Is there someone looking for me? And we read about this an awful lot of it being a common phenomena uh, when people step out and make take a point of view that other people don't agree with. There, there's the rules of engagement that you created with blockers seem to have disappeared. Now, in your environment, um, we're going to be talking about Countable.com, which is a community where the material can be validated, right? So it can be verified and people know they're in a safe place that they won't necessarily be attacked because there are rules of accountability. Is that right? That is right. And it also solves for another uh, interesting dynamic that we've seen play out on social platforms over the years. And that is this whole notion of people as product. So uh, I'm not sure if you caught the social dilemma, which was a oh, documentary yes. on Netflix. Uh-huh. Yes. It certainly opened the eyes of a lot of people on a massive scale behind uh, the business models of these social platforms, which are really about engaging in your data and gamifying your reactions to this data on behalf of a brand advertiser or sponsor dollars. So once the awareness started to creep in, not just from the consumer side, but from the advertiser side, there was a lot of backlash yes. about, uh, because in many ways, these customer, these communities no longer felt safe. And uh, Countable had for a long time been its own platform on the consumer serving side and realized there was a much broader opportunity in making these tools safe and then available to brands to engage and build their own communities in a safe environment. So without any third party tracking, uh, basically the brand, you, the data that you get is data that the the user has opted to give you. Let me talk about that in more detail in our next segment. You're listening to the Dr. Renee Frazier show. We're talking about social media safety and what it takes to be an influencer or as it used to be called a blogger. And the movie Social Dilemma is terrific. I actually interviewed one of the producers, Lori David, and she talked about the derivation of the show. And they they learn if you watch that on Netflix, you'll see that Many of the people who started the social media platforms we're on today won't allow their children to participate in social media because they see the negative downside. And unfortunately, it's all become a way to get eyeballs because of the advertising model that underlies the traditional social media. Unfortunately, sensationalism and sometimes false facts drive people's interest and drive up those numbers. But let's talk more about the solution to the situation, an alternative called Countable. You'll hear about it in our next session with Jory Desjardins. Stay tuned to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show. Welcome to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show. I am Renee Frazier, a social psychologist, entrepreneur, and advertising executive leading Frazier Communications. This show is all about why women. We're talking about issues and current trends that impact women. Today, we're talking with Jory Desjardins, and we've been talking about 
the social media environment and ecosystem that we're part of. Jory, you've been great to tell us about Blog Her and that community, which you helped create with two other co-founders. And then that evolved and, and was sold in 2014. And now you're with this company called Countable that has a platform. Tell us, Jory, what, what's the origin of Countable? And then explain to us, what is a platform? Countable is quite an interesting story. I first engaged with the platform after I had exited my own startup and met the founder, Bart Myers. So Bart is a, an entrepreneur. He's also launched uh, other companies, but he was feeling very passionate about creating a platform that enabled people to advocate, whether it didn't matter what cause you were advocating for, but just advocating and finding your tribe and being able to build coalitions. Mm. And so he took social networking to another level. Basically, you could connect with other people. You could create actions. So you could even, through automated tools, write a congressperson, set up a poll, uh, poll people for their opinions on different issues. And I found it to be incredibly engaging. By the time I met him, there were several million people on the platform. But I had a big question in my mind as someone who works so closely with brands, how do brands get involved? Because mm-hmm. brands don't like to, well, some do, but many do not want to pick a side. They, they want to be uh, increasingly engaged and they like causes, but they don't necessarily want to tip over into the political spectrum. And right. some of the causes on the platform were political. Right. So fast forward about five years and Countable has had a major shift. Uh, largely because of what has been happening in the world, and especially in the U.S., around a civic engagement. We know after the murder of George Floyd that companies were saying, this can't, we have to take a stand. Right. And many companies that uh, may not have taken a stand now felt compelled to take a stand, if not on that issue specifically, on civic engagement. Mm-hmm. And getting employees engaged, it was not even... Uh, driven, I would say, by the brands themselves. There were employees who this was how they were making their choices and where to work. You're right. Companies that were taking a stand. Right. And we're we're in this phase now in 2022 with, quote, the great resignation where people have left companies. And I'll say this, too, in the work we do, we help clients and brands impact Gen Z. Right. This younger group of, like, say, 14 to 25 year olds and, of course, millennials as well. And the causes and the values that you stand for as a brand can be an attraction, a reason why you join a company. And in very many cases, there are reasons you stay. So it's very important from a retention and recruitment perspective. And I think you're right. There's been a real sea change as brands encourage civic engagement, but it comes at a cost. And when you're doing that publicly on Facebook or Instagram or Pinterest, uh, then those trolls get attracted that we talk about. And there can be confrontation at that point in time and even competition for the attention. So tell me about Countable as it shifted to engage with brands in civic engagement. Give us an example. Sure. Well, over the course of hundreds of campaigns that Countable had run as Countable.us, it had built a playbook, uh, basically un- unwittingly, but then very intentionally as a tool set 
for community building and coalition building. So once it was turned to brands and brands could white label it and use those tools for their own causes and brand purpose, we saw a lot of interesting uh, campaigns that took place. One of them was for Starbucks. They have a they have a whole workforce of baristas. They call them partners, mm-hmm. about 300,000 of them uh, in the U.S. alone, and realize that we are having a, uh, a crisis of democracy with, with voting rights impacted. And so uh, they had staged a, a campaign that we uh, hosted on our platform called Fueling Democracy. And it's basically a resource site and it enables their baristas to get the vote out, encourage their communities to register to vote. It uh, doesn't matter how they vote, but just to vote. That's great. And it was a great way of reaching these pockets of, of opportunity where people were just not engaging in, in the civic process. Let me let me talk about what this means. So a platform is a private space. You log in, you've been invited, and you get permission, in this case, Starbucks. And it looks like you're on a Starbucks website. Uh, uh, that's been crafted for this community. There's a place for people to put up their own videos. There's a place to get resources and content. There can be a place, as as uh, as Jory just mentioned, where there's a letter that you can just plug in the name of your representative and, and sign it and shoot it off. And in many cases, the zip code finds that name for you. So it's a content-rich uh, section on a website that not everybody can have access to. And the company can present information, videos, content that they want, even dialogues, right? Webinars, conversations around this. And uh, did, did Starbucks do this kind of uh, back and forth uh, interactive engagement with the baristas during this process? Oh, absolutely. So, all companies have a different way that they're engaging with their employees, and they call it something different. Sometimes it's internal comms. Sometimes it's their impact organization. With Starbucks, they've always had a very active uh, employee engagement function. Mm-hmm. And so there are people whose job is to really uh, enable that and to make sure that, that employees feel that they are getting uh, – that they are – they're employed by a company that will enable them to be civically active and that will support that engagement. I like that, though, a company that creates a place for them and a, and a safe haven where they can talk. And then what, what Countable does, I'm hearing you say, is they actually can help create the content because uh, we create many sites for many of our clients. And I, I mentioned this yeah. to Bart, that where we create the content as well and sometimes are around issues. For example, one of the issues we've been engaged on recently is the drought in Southern California, letting people know this is another serious drought once again. We have to restrict watering our lawns. Once again, there are rebates for washers and dryers and replacing leaky faucets and things of that nature. And it's one thing to do that on a very public-facing website, but it's also something to be able to do it in a closed community where people can say, hey, I just got $575 for my new washer. Let me tell you how. And they may not want to say that on Instagram publicly, but they'll say it in this environment. Tell me about the safety part of it and the psychological phenomena, feeling like you belong to a community. 
Well, back to the whole idea of brand safety, I think that there's also a, a similar, similar and related to that is employee safety, mm-hmm. is if you are engaging with a community, you don't want to feel like you're engaging with the rest of, of the world. You want to make sure that your information is where it needs to be. And in the case of Countable, we, we actually engage on several levels, depending on, on the brand that we're working with. Some brands, they want their internal uh, impact work to be advocated for and shared out into the world. Others are more about, we want our employees to be able to do the talking for us. And so we're not going to broadcast that, but we want to empower them and give them the tools that they need. So it's more of a, of a limited uh, access. And all of it is possible. But it really depends on the philosophy of the company, of the brand, and how they want to to do their impact. Many companies do not want to uh, share so so uh, vocally how they are working on impact because their feeling is we're an impact organization. We just want to have the impact. Yes. Uh, we're not doing this for marketing purposes. Right. Uh, that said, when when their employees share what that impact looks like and how they feel and the, and the pride they feel as a result of that, that tells the story for them. Yeah, it's really about engagement of your employees and making them feel heard, right? Listened to, valued, which we know are critical to retaining people and also giving them a place where the company is willing to allow them to share. There's a, a, an implicit sense of trust, which is a really critical part of any strong brand. i uh, tell you, Jory, this has been fascinating. We are going to be wrapping up the show. Jory, before I finish, tell me, is there any piece of advice you'd like to give people out there, especially those people who might be thinking of being influencers themselves? Well, content and community go hand in hand. And whenever I've, I've been asked many times, how do I build a community? I always say start with content and start with something that you're passionate about. You will find community that comes to you when you start building out this content. The same goes with any startup or any organization that is building. They have to build content that will engage their proper community, whether it's a customer or an advocate or an investor. So start with something that you're passionate about and start to build your content story. Perfect advice. I'm what I heard from uh, Jory Desjardins, who's CMO at CountableUS.com, is that you have to be willing to share your information authentically and go in with uh, something you're passionate about, as she just said, but also be aware of what we would call terms of engagement, ways to engage with people in a way that's safe and that's respectful. And being an influencer comes with responsibility and accountability, not just sharing your information, but doing it in a meaningful and accountable way. It's been fascinating to learn about accountableus.com. Check it out. It's a platform for creating impact and and communities for brands as they want to be safe with their employees and engage them in ways where they can share information and have true impact on the world. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show. We've had Jory Desjardins on the show to talk about her early startup and blog her as well as CountableUS.com. You can listen to our other podcasts at FraserCommunications.com. Remember, Fraser is a full-service marketing firm with social and digital capabilities. Look us up on the website, FraserCommunications.com. Have a great week ahead. I'll see you soon on the Dr. Renee Fraser Show, Why Women.